All right, guys, it's time for the next level guy show. A men's interview, interest, and improvement focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats covering all aspects of their story from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. Today's guest is Don Dorcas. Don Dorcas is an MD, PhD, and is a board-certified emergency physician and the founder of the Emergency Mind, which brings together lessons from experts in the emergency department and beyond on developing the tools it takes to succeed during times of crisis and applying knowledge under pressure. Dr. Dorcas received his MD and PhD in molecular medicine from the Boston University School of Medicine. He performed his residency training in emergency medicine with Harvard Medical School at the Massachusetts General Hospital and also at Bingham Health. He's worked in some of the largest and busiest emergency departments in the country and he's currently an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California. And in this interview, we discuss his story, the emergency mind, how to utilize the mindset of an ER doctor to complete your goals, how to overcome fear, skill development, and how to use the habits and tactics of the emergency mind to thrive under pressure and perform at the next level when it truly matters. And now, let's get to the interview. And thanks for having me, by the way. I've, I've been really looking forward to this. So thanks for making the time. You're a brave man coming on here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gustavo said great stuff, and that, that means a lot to me. He's a pretty awesome dude. So, Well, that was something I was wanting to go into, actually. Yeah. Is how long have you trained with Gustavo for? Um, I have been, uh, doing martial arts since I was a little kid. Uh, I started when I was about eight. My dad actually, uh, trained with Chuck Norris back in the day, um, before, nice. before, right before Chuck Norris was like sort of a big deal when it was just, you know, Chuck Norris's karate school in Encino, California. Um, and I was like a, uh, you know, really pudgy kid into reading Dungeons and Dragons. And, uh, I think my family quite appropriately was like, great, let's get this kid into some martial arts. Um, which is one of the best things that's ever happened to me in the universe. And so I started, I started training when I was eight back in, in Texas. Um, and we did a little bit of jujitsu that back then it was mostly sort of karate and taekwondo, but my, uh, my instructor was really open, really forward thinking and had gone out and actually he had trained with the Machado family for a long time. And so brought that back to us. Um, but it's only really been, and then you know, it's been a long sort of like awesome journey through Muay Thai and Sanda and a lot of other things, but it's really only been in the last maybe three years that I've been pretty much solely focusing on jujitsu. Um, and, uh, I've been lucky enough to train with, uh, with coach Gustavo for that since I've been out in LA. Cool. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, like, well, firstly, who are you? Uh, Cause you've got an awesome podcast, you've got an awesome SEP, et cetera, but you know, you, you came to me with an approach to come on because you had like a, a great understanding and a, a skill set you could teach people but for people who have never heard of your podcast and i know it's going to explode after this one but you know 
how would you define what the Emergency Mind podcast is, who you are, and why you why you feel that you're the right person to talk about these sort of things? Absolutely. So, so my name is Dan Dworkis, and I am an emergency doctor out here in Los Angeles, California. Uh, and I'm the creator of the Emergency Mind, which is a space that brings in lessons both from the emergency department, but also from beyond, uh, with a goal of trying to help everybody, not just emergency doctors, get better at performing during times of crisis and, and at applying knowledge under pressure. So, you know, whether or not you're an ER doctor, you're going to face emergencies in your lives. We all do. And what it takes to not just survive, but really succeed during a time of crisis or an emergency is a really different mindset and a really different skill set than what we use in our day-to-day lives. And so the emergency mind is all about taking the best lessons that anybody's ever figured out under times of pressure and trying to distill from them these core concepts and techniques that we can start using in our lives right now. Because that's what I loved about your your material, your sort of content was you weren't just these kind of niche podcasts where you discuss your particular area. You would always go on to sort of explain how people could use it in the boardroom, how they could mm-hmm. use it in their particular job. And that's what some places forget. They talk too much about their own particular niche area and they forget to relate it to somebody who stumbles across a podcast or somebody that wants to find out about it, but how to use it in their own life. But were you always that kind of kid? Were you the kid that in the group where everybody's panicking because we had broken like uh, the tree hat or whatever, you sort of took charge, you could remove the emotion from it and sort of not panic in these situations. You know, were you always that kind of natured person or has this something you've had to develop over the years? Yeah, I think that's a good and that's a really important question too, because I think it's, it's easy to look at people that are, you know, excellent performers. Some of the folks that you've had on the podcast before, or I look at some of, you know, my colleagues who are ER doctors that are just sort of like wading into waves of crisis. And it's easy to look at them and be like, oh, they must have been like that their entire lives. But I think that's sort of a myth. I think like nobody's really born like that. And that really it's a skill that performance under pressure is a skill that any of us can develop. I mean, I, I look back at like, my first day of uh, my first week of medical school. And you know, that, that first week you're, you know, you're sitting there in your tiny white coat and you're like super proud to be where you are. Uh, and you know, nothing about, you know, you were the proverbial, like, you know, nothing, Jon Snow. And you are like, you know, they take you in to see a patient and, and you just it, like, it's overwhelming even talking to a patient for the first time. Right. And I remember, I remember distinctly mispronouncing my own name. And being like, oh man, how am I, how am I ever going to go from mispronouncing my own name to being like successful at this? But the truth is that like, you know, you you learn and you grow and you keep putting yourself in these situations that are harder and harder, and you develop the skills that it takes to to succeed and to stay calm at it. Um, so we, I talk a lot on the podcast about this this word sang froid, right? This French word. It's a combination of uh, song meaning blood and froid meaning cold, and this idea of of cold blooded of of the the. Uh, mental and physiological state of being cool under pressure. Um, and I, I really truly believe that that's a thing that we develop. And it, as long as we, if we choose to, we can develop that and, and train ourselves into that. But I, I certainly don't think I had it, you know, from the time I was a little kid. So can you explain to, like, if somebody, if you had to sum it up, what would you explain as the, the emergency mind? Is it the ability to remain under pressure or is it the ability to sort of see everything but like 
be involved but also be able to step back and see the whole process you know not just see the wood but see the trees as such how would you define what the emergency mind is for somebody listening Sure. So I think that when you find yourself in an emergency, when you find yourself in a situation that has stress, uncertainty, uh, and this potential for really high impact, your brain and your body change. You deploy a different set of algorithms and packages and physiologic sort of responses to that set of crises. And you do that. I do that. Everybody does that. And to, to me, that whole set of skills, the mental skills, the physiologic skills, the thought algorithms that we use, that is the emergency mind. So we all have one, right? Our body defaults to something. And, and if you think back to a time uh, in your life when you were in an emergency, maybe you, know, you, were, you were in a car wreck or you're about to be in a car wreck or you're in a really tight spot in jujitsu, like th- these things happen. Your, your body and your mind just changes. And so we all have one. The problem is if you don't train it, it probably sucks right? You're just having this set of responses that are, are a lot like flailing. Um, and to me, training it is the idea that you can take that sort of raw material and shape from it something that is useful. And so, so what is the emergency mind? It's the set of these mindsets and algorithms and physiologic processes that we can deploy when we are deep in crisis that will, that will help us get through it, help us succeed at it, and help us bring sort of the best possible version of ourselves to bear. So how do we make sure then that we have a growth mindset towards that sort of area? Because you know, a yeah. lot of people just get stuck with that fixed mindset where they just go, oh God, panic. And they, you know, they start shitting themselves and shouting mm-hmm. about and, you know, and they get aggressive and stuff like that. So how do you enable people? How do you train and get to a point where we can understand this and want to develop ourselves. But, you know, like why do some people crumble and others rise to become heroes during emergencies? Sure, sure. So, so that's a great question. So the first step is just understanding in your own mind and really believing that, that there's possibility for change here. Right. If you think you are the type of person that's going to crumble and like, you know, at the first sign of trouble, just like vomit all over your shoes and collapse. If you believe that is truly the only way that you're going to respond, then that's how you're going to respond. Right. So the first step is understanding, hey, like this is a skill and a choice. And even if it seems terrifying to me, I can get better at it. And then the second thing is to sort of commit to yourself that you're going to become a student of this. And I like what you said about the idea of a growth mindset, because it really is committing to being a lifelong student of performance under pressure. Um, It's not a thing that we ever stop doing, right? And it's not a thing that there's ever a perfect way to say, great, here, I'm going to give you this little pill. And then all of a sudden, you're going to eat this pill and you're going to be a total, you know, an absolute, it's it's not like, um, what's the right metaphor here? It's not like uh, Spider-Man, right? Peter Parker gets bit by a radioactive spider and then all of a sudden he has magical powers, right? It, it It doesn't work like that. It has to be a a series of learning and a series of growth and experimentation on yourself. And so that growth mindset, that idea that you're going to constantly push the line a little bit, and then you're going to reflect on what happened and try to build yourself better over time, I think is the, is the first most important part to it. Um, you know, um, in one of the episodes in my podcast, uh, I had, um, um, a friend of mine, Amy Hildreth, who's a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy and one of the directors of, uh, of simulation and education for one of the Navy emergency residencies. And she came on and talked a lot about the idea that sometimes it can be, you know, when you're first starting to train yourself to think under pressure like this, 
you know, most of us jump ahead to be like, oh man, how am I going to do when there's like a fire and a hundred casualties and like 16 explosions? And that's like so big and so overwhelming and it really shuts you down and might get you right back to that vomit on your shoes and collapse kind of idea. But instead, instead of starting all the way there, what if we start really slow, right? What if we take something today that makes us a little nervous that we're not sure we can handle and push ourselves just a little bit and just keep piece by piece taking the more sort of like Kaizen approach to it, more piece by piece building our ability to respond under emergencies. Because that was something I was going to ask was, you know, what do you believe about the, the Kaizen mythology of mm -hmm. like going and your continuous improvement that you're never actually finished? Because that's something I've learned while doing this podcast is, the top tier people, the top performers are not always born just better than everybody. It's mm -hmm. the work they've put in, the growth they do, but the fact they never stop learning, they're continuously pushing themselves and learning and developing. But, you know, something I really liked about your, your show was, um, I think it was your episode number one, where you were talking about what you do during the first stages of an emergency. Mm -hmm. You know, like when a nurse runs in and tells you that, you know, you've got patients inbound and you might not even have met your team by this point if you're locum in and things like that. What's what's the first sort of steps do you do on an individual basis to prepare for an emergency? What you know, like say there is the big explosions and the tunnels collapsed and all that sort of stuff. What do you do initially before everything else to kind of center yourself, to calm, to before you can, you know, start planning and prepping everything? Yeah. So, um, so I can't talk about individual patient cases, but I can tell you that the other day I was running a unit uh, and we got an exact call that said, hey, you know, this building had just exploded. There's an unknown number of inbound casualties uh, and they look pretty sick. You know, you have you have anywhere between, you know, three and like 25 inbound casualties and you have anywhere between like two and 10 minutes go. So this is a really real question. Um, and sometimes in our lives, we get this, this, we get this warning, like, Hey, there's something coming right at us and we have a minute to repair. And sometimes we don't, and we only realize we're in an emergency, like a few minutes into it. Uh, and either way, you have to find something at the beginning that sort of drops your normal mindset and puts on your emergency mind. You have to have that on switch that, you know, the sort of like, you know, the, the moment that you really, that you really start firing it up. And so when we talk about, you know, the emergency mind, the, the first pillar of it, we have sort of these four pillars that we can talk about at some point today, but the first pillar of it is this idea of accepting reality. That the first thing that you have to do is understand, okay, this is an emergency. I'm in an emergency. I'm going to deploy my skills. Um, and you know, the more energy you spend, if you sort of take the opposite approach, the more energy you spend denying that you're in an emergency, you know, I don't want to handle these patients. I can't do this. We can't do this. Everything is terrible. All of that energy, and you can't see me, but, you know, I'm literally making the hand motion here of like pushing things away from me, right? The more energy you spend fighting reality, uh, the less time you have to prepare, you waste all that energy, you can't get it back. And, and energy that's not pointed directly towards your problem is energy that's wasted. So, so for me personally, what I do is I take a deep breath. I usually say some version of like, all right, you know, Dworkis, let's get into it. Um, and then I actually check my own pulse. So uh, it's pretty simple. I just put two fingers on the, the radial pulse on my wrist um, and I feel a couple of heartbeats. And that does, that does two or three things for me. So one is that one of the first things they teach you in medical school is how to take your pulse. Um, and it reminds me of sort of where I've been in the training that I've been through. So 
I know I can check my pulse. And it reminds me of all the other times I've checked my pulse over the years, all the times that I've been through hard situations with, with uh, really challenging, um, very sick patients that we've had to care for, and all the times we've made it through. And if I've made it through that, then I have enough skills and I'm going to try to make it through this. The other thing it reminds me of is that you know you never know how many heartbeats you have left, um, but I can feel this one right now and I get a choice of what to do with it. And for me, that sort of reaffirms my choice that no matter what's going to come through those doors, I'm going to use these heartbeats the best that I can, and I'm going to do everything I can with me and my team to take care of it. Uh, I really like that because I did similar before I kind of found out about, I think you called them tactical pauses, mm-hmm. whereas I used to do a bit of the CBT kind of, you know, like cognitive behavior therapy, and wow. I would do the the three deep breaths. Sure. And I would try feel my body again because usually when shit's hitting the fan and I've got students asking me for stuff and staff moaning about stuff and you've got 50 things juggling, you don't know what to jump on. Just sometimes remembering that you're a person sitting on a seat, you know, that the world's not ending. And I know it's different for you where you've got somebody's life on the line a lot of the time and you've got another person waiting and then another person. For the majority of us, we sometimes forget, you know, we get so wrapped up that it's like seeing the was it the wood for the trees. We mm-hmm. forget that we can step back and breathe and react to this. So, something I really liked about your sort of your podcast was the idea of the four sort of stages. Can you go into a little bit about that? Because you've alluded to one just now, but what's the kind of overview of these four stages that you do? Yeah, absolutely, man. And and just before diving into that, like what you're saying is so true that that for me it might be taking my pulse, and for you it might be taking a couple of deep breaths. And you know, we talked a, a few minutes ago about the idea that you have to become a student of yourself for this, right? You have to understand that nobody's going to figure this out for you, and that it's really going to be up to you to figure out how you best respond under pressure and to study it. So, you know, when you find yourself really stressed like that, when you find yourself in a crisis, experiment with this a little bit try to take some deep breaths, try to check your pulse, try to, I've got a, you know, a friend of mine that makes an okay sign with his left hand. I don't know, that wouldn't do anything for me, but that's what he likes doing. Um, You know, when I was doing more Muay Thai, I would like bang my gloves together twice before the beginning of every round. Like whatever it is, whatever it is that centers you, whatever that motion is, that sort of anchor movement, like you have to sort of experiment with that and figure out what your own personal version of that is. And the idea, sort of one of the underpinning ideas behind the emergency mind in general is that now is the time to practice that, right? By the time you find yourself in the center of a crisis in a real emergency, you know, it's not the time to really be experimenting. That's the time to deploy, take action and move forward. So when you need to explore, when you need to experiment, when you need to grow is now before you're in an emergency. And so you have to commit to doing that growth now, even though you're not really in the center of the crisis. Um, but all that said, to answer to answer your question, you know, when I think of the emergency mind, there are really four things that ER doctors do or, or that we really try to do um, during every critical case. And those are we, um, we accept reality, uh, we act from within, we deploy sangfua, and we try to play for the future. Um, we talked briefly about the idea of accepting reality, but but really what it means is committing to be here now, uh, is knowing that whether or not we like it, whether or not it's what we wanted to do, this is where we are, this is the reality of our lives, and our 
patients, our family, everybody around us depend on us accepting what's happening and moving forward with it. Um, uh, you know, there's this great, um, there's a band I like, uh, the Real McKinsey's, uh, that has this song called "The Best Day Till Tomorrow," uh, which I think is like a perfect a perfect metaphor for that. Like, no matter what you're facing, this is actually the best day you have until tomorrow. It doesn't mean it's a good day. It doesn't mean it's the day that you want to wake up and have. Um, and I think that uh, a lot of us are sort of wrestling with ideas like that right now in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. But this actually is the best day that we have to deal with whatever it is that we're dealing with. Um, and sort of taking that mindset and, and, and moving forward with it is is the first idea, sort of committing to, to being here and committing to doing your best. Um, the uh, the second part, uh, acting from within, has a lot of grounding in Stoic philosophy, which we can also dig into as, as much or as little as you want. But it's basically the idea that that there's stuff in the universe that you have control over and there's stuff that you don't. And especially in the middle of an emergency, anytime you spend, any energy you spend on things that you don't actually have any control over is energy that's wasted and it's less energy that you can deliver uh, to your patient where and when they need it. So understanding where you have control, which is entirely internal, right? How can you change yourself? How can you change your attitude? How can you change your own sort of thought processes? Uh, this is where you can make a difference. So it's about recognizing that and, and playing from that sphere of control. Um, Songfua, I mentioned uh, earlier the idea of, of it, it literally translates into cold-blooded, and there's this great quote by Napoleon that says, you know, for my troops, panic must be drilled out and Songfua instilled. Um, I think when I started this whole process, I, I thought that Songfua was really a simple sort of idea of like, oh, yeah, you just don't panic under pressure. But as I've come to study this more and talk to more people and, and do more research about it, you know, it strikes me that Sangfua is really more complicated than that. It's it's a pretty complex um, mental, but also physiological state where you're able to use things like biofeedback to sort of um, alter your body's uh, mental and physiological responses to stress, to optimize your performance under pressure, not just to survive, but really to optimize it. Um, and then the last thing we do is we try to play for the future, which is which is the idea that Whatever we're doing, um, whatever things come at us, whatever emergencies we find ourselves in, we try to act in a way that that connects that to our broader vision of of reality and our broader vision of the universe. Um, that sounds a little high minded, but but what I really mean by that is that uh, one thing is we try to never waste any suffering, right? People suffer, and and a lot of times there's there's just simply no way to stop that. The person in front of you is suffering. But can you treat them? And as you're treating them, can you learn things? And as you're learning things, can you turn around and teach those things to other people so that maybe the next person that comes in can suffer less? And that idea of never wasting the suffering that you're seeing, of, of connecting whatever you're doing to sort of the broader idea of treating humanity. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot for one, one soup of me talking, but that is the, that's the idea. Those are the pillars that make up the emergency mind and sort of what we train and, and um, deploy training and tactics around. No, I love that because that is something when you, when you've got a fabulous podcast, when I listen to the guests and the, the breadth of the discussions are really amazing. And I'm really, I was really impressed by the quality and the depth you went into of each area. When something I really liked was the bit about 
um, I can't remember the exact episode, but you talked about making peace with the fact that you can't control everything. Mm. Now, most people, they come in and they'll start saying, okay, we need to do that and I'll control that and do it over there. But a lot of times you're maybe just out of medical school. You know, there's nurses there with far more experience than you. There's, you know, you maybe don't know the situation you're in if you're maybe in a foreign country helping out, etc. So how do we make peace without being able to, you know, not being able to control everything and being able to decide if a patient dies or not? You know, because a lot of us, we focus solely on the thing and it crumbles as if the outcome isn't successful. But how do you make peace with the fact that you can't control what happens? You know, I think you told a story, uh, somebody told a story about two twin babies had died in Haiti and... Yeah, I mean that's heartbreaking to look at like the resources available in different countries, but that would have destroyed me. How, you know, could you like talk a wee bit about that? But like, how how can we make peace with you know then going into the next room and being able to just fight solely for that patient rather than letting the past experience continually build up on us and infect how we act. Yeah, Ian, that's such a, a rich set of things, man. And and I wish that there was uh, a single sort of like bomb of wisdom I could drop and just make that easy for everybody. But I, I don't think that's how the universe works. Um, so so let's let's come at that from a couple angles. You know, one is you talked about how how can we sort of um, the words you use were sort of like decide who lives and dies in an emergency and and. You know, I, I am under no uh, no impression that I have that power at all. I don't think any doctor does, and uh, I, I certainly don't. I think that, you know, the universe does what it will, and what we can do is sort of decide, are we going to step up and give the best we have to offer or, or not? That is really my only choice, right? My only choice in any case in any day is, am I going to deliver the best version of Dan Dworkis that I possibly can to this patient? Um and that really goes backward to the, the question I would have faced the day before, which is, am I going to train today so that tomorrow I can deliver the best version of Dan Dworkis possible to that patient? And that is the fundamental question that each of us has to has to answer for ourselves every day. And that gets into so many things that you've talked about in your podcast with your guests as well, right? In, in different versions, which is essentially that question, am I going to do the training today that needs to happen so that tomorrow I can be the best person I can? Um, you know, uh, there's another idea in there that you talked about, sort of about how do you handle a really challenging outcome when the outcome isn't what you want it to be, when somebody dies, when somebody suffers. And and I think that there's there's two things to talk about here. One is the stoic idea of memento mori, right? Which which is the idea that that remember that we are mortal. Um, and I think that it's something that. Uh, we unfortunately avoid a lot in, in our culture, which is that we don't talk about death. We don't think about death. We don't think about what that really is. Um, and so part of my answer to your question there is to say that, you know, people are going to die and you cannot stop people from dying. You can't stop yourself from dying. And so what do you do with that? Right. If you really sit down and dig into that and make yourself uncomfortable and sit with that and think about the fact that you're going to die how do you get up the next day and keep going? Well, for me, that makes me more excited to get up the next day and keep going. Right? There's this um, there's this uh, great 
Japanese poem and I'm blanking on the I'm blanking on the name of the author, but it basically says, look, if today is my day to die and I die, so be it. If today is my day to die and it turns out I don't, even better. Right? The idea that like if you're able to really process that and take yourself into the mindset that you will die and then you get another day tomorrow, man, what an amazing gift. Um so I think that's part of the answer to it. The other thing for me goes back to a really, really important structural difference between performance and outcome. So um, the uh, have you ever read the book Thinking in Bets by the poker player yeah. Anne Duke? No, yet, no. Totally awesome. Strong, strongly recommend it. She's a professional poker player that talks a lot about the mindset of poker. Um, and uh, it, in it, she has this idea of a matrix which separates performance and outcome. So imagine you have a two-by-two two matrix, and one side is performance, which is good performance or bad performance, and the other side is outcome, which is good outcome, bad outcome. So performance is all of the set of things that we control. Okay, It's how I act, how I think, how I train, how I do anything, anything that falls within me that I have control over. An outcome is what happens in the case which is a mix of performance, things I have control over, and you know the, the will of the universe or the role of the dice or whatever you want to say, things that I don't have any control over. And I think that if you tie yourself to outcome, um, then you're sort of at the whim of things outside of you. But really, all you can control is performance. And so one thing that I try to do when I'm faced with these really difficult outcomes, these really tragic cases, people suffering and dying, is to try to subset out from them, to look backward and subset out from them. And Annie Duke calls this process fielding. But to, to separate out what is performance, what part do I have any control over, and how did I do there, and how can I do better at it, and to really, really be honest about what I have control over and what I don't. Um, because otherwise, I don't know how you could get up and go into the next room, right? If you were responsible truly, personally, for the life and death of every patient, you know, that would be overwhelming. What I am responsible for is to deliver the best I possibly can to that person and to their family. And then I'm equally responsible to the next person in the next room over and their family. And so figuring out, you know, how to draw that line between what is within me and what is outside of me? What do I have control over and how do I do it is a, is a really strong skill set. And again, the idea is to start small, right? So in your day-to-day -day life, like, can you stumble into a situation that had a good outcome or a bad outcome and, and step back and say, okay, well, let me, let me practice dissecting that. Like what, what part of that was performance and what part of that was outside of my control and how can I learn from that? What can I get better at on the performance? Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's part of where that idea of peace comes from. That's brilliantly put. I mean, that's something I liked about your your podcast was you didn't shy away from the the negative side of people will die. Yeah. You know that we we are all dying. We we're not always guaranteed the next day. And I think that's the beauty of people like Tim Ferriss, Aubrey Marcus, is they're opening people up into the understanding that. You know, we there could be like a pandemic like going on just now, um, where a virus could start killing off people, and it's just no rhyme or reason why some people go yeah. and you know to live life the best we possibly can. 
I mean, so how do you then analyze a situation after, you know, how do you review a situation after you've gone through this, you know, you've not crumbled under the pressure, you've thought, you know, you've looked to the future, et cetera, and you've maybe saved a patient or, you know, you've got them to start the process where they can then go into like the, the other departments to start like their long-term recuperation. Mm-hmm. How do you analyze each situation if it's negative, positive, whatever it is to then learn from it, to grow that mindset, to develop the skills, to, to use a better version of Dan for the next patient? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, um, you mentioned Aubrey Marcus. So, so first off, less, I don't want it to come off like I am a perfectly cool human being in all situations. I think, <laughs> I think that wouldn't be correct, right? I think we're all learning and we're all growing. And so I actually, mm-hmm. actually met Aubrey Marcus the other day at a coffee shop in Venice uh, and had awesome. like, you know, had like a one second conversation with him during which time I just thanked him for what he does because I think he provides a lot of value to the universe. And He's you know, quite an intensive guy, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. And, and I like you know, was a little nervous to come up and talk to him, which is funny because I was actually sitting writing part of the emergency mind at the same time, you know, talking about being cool under pressure. And then I'm a little jittery coming up and meeting this person. And I immediately spill coffee like all over the table. Uh, and I was like, oh, good, good. Just a, another reminder that like, you know, I'm still in process and still learning how to be a, a better version of myself here. Um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll sit down and talk to him about that story one day, but um but so, so you asked a, a sort of deeper question than that, of course, which is how do you post-process something and how do you learn from it? Um, I think a really important thing to think through is that at different times, you're going to be better or, or worse at processing and understanding things. And some of that has to do with what else is going on in your body and mind. Right. So if you sit down immediately after an event, like seconds after an event, uh, and start, you know, trying to do a really in-depth root cause analysis, it's probably not going to be super useful. So, I mean, imagine, imagine Ian, you're on a mat and you have a, you know, a really uh, challenging role with somebody and you get stuck in a Kimura and you've been trying not to get stuck in a Kimura and you're frustrated. And if I told you to sit down and, you know, like journal for me 10 minutes about that, that probably wouldn't be super useful right? You've just got too many things, too many chemicals stirring in your body, too many like different responses going on. And so, so one answer to your question is I try to design different types of processing based on what's happening. So immediately after a challenging event, I will do more of a clearing, right? I'll, I'll do a reset button. I will sit and take a couple breaths. I'll check my pulse again. I'll try to let that wave of stress and that wave of um, which, which often is a good thing, not a bad thing, right? The, the chemicals and the, the sort of responses our body brings to get us ready for a complicated situation. I'll let that even itself out. Um, and some of the research out there says that takes at least uh, a minute and a half or so to really, really, really wash out, um, or at least for the first part to wash out. Uh, so I'll really do nothing. I'll breathe. I'll check my pulse. I'll walk around. Um, then when I'm a little bit more able to process, the first thing I'll do is usually a team-based debrief where I'll take uh, everybody that was in the room, the nurses, the other doctors, if there are any, the respiratory therapist, the pharmacist, and I'll get us there in a circle and we'll talk through what happened to sort of an immediate after action report. What went well, what didn't go well. Uh, and we'll start with just sort of a narrative, like what happened? Like, what did we do? What did we do well? What do we think went wrong? And then we'll always end that with a question of, 
did, what did we learn from this that we can immediately change? And what did we learn from this that we can start the process of changing? And so that might be, hey, you know, we learned that the, you know, oral airway device, which is a thing you can use to, to put in somebody's mouth when they're not breathing and sort of stent it open uh, to get a little more oxygen in there as you're setting up to maybe place a breathing tube. Uh, well, you know, that really needs to be stocked in a place that is reachable from the head of the bed. Okay, cool. That's something we can change immediately. We can just tape one to the wall, right? Or maybe we learn something more systemic like, hey, when there's this type of patient coming in and we have two minutes, we need to make sure that our, our protocol is to set up the room in this configuration. Cool. We can start that process of learning for the future. Um, then, so that's sort of like the second wave. And the third wave is the idea of sort of floating this um, both internally and externally. So, so internally, I might sit down and write about the case. Uh, I might talk it out loud. I might go back and one of the other doctors I interviewed, uh, Dana Sajid in episode, I don't know, maybe seven, talks about the idea of running a case backward in his mind and just sort of changing things uh, either randomly or on purpose and then trying to imagine how the case would have gone differently, which is a skill I really like and definitely has some applications to jujitsu training as well. Um, mm, definitely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, or, you know, if I'm lucky enough to have uh, residents or other, you know, sort of junior doctors with me, I'll often run the case with them and see what they come up with. And they're, they're constantly pushing me to think up better ways to do things, which I, which I totally love. Cause I've done that too, you know, where you've kind of, you look back at a situation and think, what if I did this? How would it have affected mm -hmm. that? Um, I mean, I was, I was always a great believer that you could teach anybody about medicines and protocols and stuff, but you know, it's the people skills as well. It's the ability of like how you lead, how you control people, etc. But, Something that um, you, when you had the interview with Andrea Austin, I think it was, where mm -hmm. she mentioned about the being cognitively depleted, I, and I loved that phrase. How how do you keep going this? Because you know we have this image of doctors, especially AD doctors and those kind of doctors, where you know you're constantly working long shifts and getting just a barrage of people coming in and all different kind of things when you're uh, when you're like mind is getting tired and you know you're trying you haven't got a coffee and things like that how do you keep your decision making and avoiding burning out you know how do you keep it for the the seriously important things and not worrying about the little things you know i think you talked about being loose and tight, you know, you could see the humor of a situation, but not lose the seriousness of it. How, you know, how, can you talk about like when everything seems a priority, how do you not avoid just burning out, panicking? Is it, do you go back to these like visualization, these techniques you've learned, or is there a method you can do with your diet, with yourself during the day to, to help? Yeah, man, that's a, that's a great question. I, you know, certainly you can make it worse, right? <laughs> Which is a weird way to answer that question. But, you know, you can take a situation where it's full of pressure and you definitely can make it worse. And how would you make it worse? Well, probably you don't sleep the night before, you don't eat that morning, you eat a lot of really crappy, sugary stuff, and you, you know, get angry and you don't take the time to, to do the stuff that you know helps you feel better if that's yoga or training or breathing or whatever. You can certainly make it worse. The opposite is also true, which is that you can optimize yourself um, 
to make better decisions under pressure. And part of that is what you did the day before, right? Sleep and eat and hydrate and manage your caffeine. Um, part of that is, uh, you know, a thing that I am still experimenting with. And, and if you or anybody listening to this has ideas, I'd want to hear it. Um, I always am asking my, my teammates about how they train themselves to make better decisions. And that's from sort of like a physiological standpoint. From a, a mental systems standpoint, um, it, it's a really fascinating question. How do you design mental systems that uh, that support you in making good decisions? And not just, as you mentioned, the first good decision, but maybe the hundredth good decision in a row. Um, you know, uh, the, um, the Knowledge Project podcast uh, out of the people from Farnham Street um, Shane Parrish had a really interesting episode a couple of months, maybe almost a year ago with uh, Daniel Kahneman, who's the Nobel Prize winning economist and the author of the book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, um, which is a really amazing book. Uh, and Shane Parrish asked him a question, which was essentially, do you think we can ever, some version of like, do you think we can ever train ourselves to really overcome um, the bad habits of our mind? I'm paraphrasing wildly here. Kahneman, who's like the world's expert on this, had a really fascinating answer, which was essentially, no, I think that the human mind has been designed by evolution to work a certain way. And rather than try to overcome it, what we should do is try to understand it and build systems that support it. Um, and to me, that goes back to the idea of accepting reality, right? Like I'm never going to be a perfect brain. I'm just not going to happen. But can I figure out how I work during the course of a shift, during the course of a match, whatever it is, and 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 train myself to sort of strengthen up where I need strengthening and exploit where I already am strong? So, for example, um, I might decide in certain certain circumstances to become slightly more conservative towards the end of a shift. Uh, I might order slightly more testing. Um, I might uh, think a lot harder before. Um, doing certain uh, treatments for a particular patient, because I know, uh, like everybody, at the end of the shift, my brain works slightly differently than at the beginning of the shift. It's not to say it's better or worse. It's just over time, the way that you think uh, changes a little bit. Um, and um, you know, you can develop a lot of techniques to sort of um, to sort of strengthen yourself in those systems. But but first is realizing that you need that, that you need to design systems to support your thinking um, in different points of the day. Because I think you've seen that, um, I think you've mentioned it as well, I've mentioned on the, the show before about the survey that was done that looked at um, uh, people who were going up for a release from prison and you were more likely to get parole after lunch than before it. <laughs> yeah. And it's just little things like that that can be, you know, it's nothing about you personally or your case or the situation. It can be just about somebody's blood sugar level mm -hmm. and what they've eaten. And it's scary that we don't. A lot of people don't realize that and how it affects what they're actually doing. Um, I mean, something I'm going to probably butcher this quote, but somebody wrote a, a cracking thing that really helped me. That where it was, don't set goals, don't set deadlines, build processes, and you'll succeed. Hmm. And that's why I always try to do is always have a protocol for something, regardless of what it is, of how I'm running something in my home or at work or in the podcast. 
I always have procedures. If I email you and you tell me to fuck off, then I do step, step, step. If you say, yeah, I can do it, but not in six months, I go, okay, step, step, step. I always have procedures for everything. Hmm. Now, do you think this helps a sort of emergency doctor, that kind of understanding where you can be dealing with nurses who, if you took that nurse away from the, you know, using the CPR, you would kill the patient. If you took the nurse away from administrating X, Y, Z, it would kill the patient. But it allows a doctor then to see the overall thing and project manage the situation, but also remove the emotion from it. So you can see, you know, when to stop, when to change tact if something's not working, but you let people focus solely on their job, if you know what I mean. How, because you're a big component of jujitsu, like I am. Mm-hmm. But, and this has really helped me kind of, you know, controlling what's happening in my arm, what's happening in my legs, but also seeing the overall, you know, what, how long's left in the timer, how long is left in the match, am I winning, am I losing, am I in a strong position, am I going to get swept? How how do you develop these things, but still, you know what I mean, but, but still not get caught up in it? Hmm. So I, I want to clarify the question you're asking is about how do you develop uh, protocols that let you see the field, but also the details. Is that right? Yeah. Like how do you, because this is a problem with your materials. I get so kind of involved and there's like 50 or 60 things and I'm trying to keep it separate, but I'm just like, it, it all links together so well. And because I've been so fascinated by your show and learning about this stuff, 50 or 60 things come together so I could already see an episode two coming, but yeah, how, right how do you deal with like project management? Sure. But also so, see your picture. So, so we talk a lot in the emergency department about the idea of um, the cone of focus, uh, which is the sense that like, what are you actually, what's actually in your field of focus right now? And there are times when the appropriate thing in your field of focus is your field of focus is really tight, really, really, really contained on one thing. You know, if I'm placing a uh, a central line, which is a, a you know, um, 15, 20 centimeter long uh, intravenous line that goes into the jugular vein, for instance, uh, which is a relatively in-depth procedure, involves cutting into the neck and placing this device into the jugular vein. You know, my focus is entirely on, especially in the one or two moments of that procedure that are absolutely critical, that is the entirety of my focus. And then how do I learn to zoom in, so to speak, on that moment, and then immediately zoom back out to see the field of the other 15, 20, maybe 50 patients that are around that I'm also um, you know, responsible for. Uh, and part of that comes with practice and, and not necessarily, uh, so like anything, there's an idea of like sort of pra- like random practice, like you just do things enough and it spins off learning for you versus the idea of a more um, purposeful or, or what, uh, you know, Anders Ericsson would call the deliberate practice that talks about you're really, really training and experimenting around an idea. Um, and part of it is the idea that once you do things a couple of times, it costs you less energy to do the same mental process. So a decision that you've made before costs a little less. Um, certainly true in jujitsu, right? The first time that you uh, you know, got out of a guard, it was this massively complicated procedure. Um, 
you know, it feels still feels like that to me some days, depending on what's happening. Uh, but when it, but when it works, I'm like, right, this is like smooth. I understand this. Like, yeah, that's that's how this is going to go, and it costs less energy, and so you're able to devote more of your attention to other places. Um, I, I think that's I think that is a an okay answer to your question, but not a great one. And, and part of that is that I'm not sure that there's a totally well understood. Uh, answer to that. I mean, I think that's an, an area of really active inquiry and exploration for me is how do I um, how do I best make the types of decisions in particular that require me to zoom in on a thing and then zoom immediately back out. And I guess a more perhaps relatable example to people that aren't you know cutting into people's necks to placing central lines, which ho- hopefully is most people. Um, you know, is, is you know you're driving and you're uh, going around a really complicated turn and then a person try it like you know cuts across the lane of traffic and you have to really rapidly decide whether to swerve or not so that's a moment when your focus is really tight you have everything you have on this like one or two little movements you're going to make with the car immediately afterwards though you then have to reset and zoom back out and sort of re-understand where all the other cars are around you in space because if you don't do that if you're still focused on the minutiae you're going to slam into the next thing next to you um, I don't know. Does, does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, do you think then that in that using kind of understanding the procedures, the protocols, the you know how to use a certain bit of equipment, does that help then remove the emotion from an event where mm. because you know that you know the patient comes in and they've got like a collapsed lung, you know the procedures to you know re reinflate the lung, how to get them stable, how to incubate them, etc. That you know, does it take the emotion away then because it could be any name on it on the like the top of the the chart because you know step by step by step or or you know in jujitsu you know how to do an arm bar but step by step by step it doesn't really matter the opponent it's more kind of you dictating how to get them in a situation to do the armbar. Do you think? Yeah, like, yeah, that's a that's a good man. I, I'm gonna, I'm going to answer a very subtly different question that I think gets back to it, right? So, um, the question of does it take the emotion away? Uh, no, I, I have not found the emotion disappears. I've found that I'm a lot more able to handle it in a way that um, is productive and useful, and that takes that emotional charge, that energy that comes from the emotion and helps me do better for that patient. Right. I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, um, contrary to what perhaps, uh, you know, if you've got some ex-girlfriends on the show, what they might think I'm I'm not a robot, right. I I do actually have, uh, uh, you know, I do have emotions like everybody else. And I, I don't think ever, um, no matter how good of an ER doctor I become in my life, I don't think I'm ever going to get rid of emotions. I don't think that's the goal, right? The goal is to be able to feel the emotion, to handle it, um, to understand what it's telling you, and then to find a way to use whatever arises, whatever energy arises, uh, to redeploy your skills for the patient in front of you. Um, so uh, the other day I was, uh, working in an emergency department and I had um, with me a scribe, which was a a college student who is going around to help you sort of write the charts. And um, they're there to to see, you know, emergency medicine. And we had a patient who who died and, um, you know, we'd taken a moment of silence for the patient and we're sort of regrouped and ready to go to the next thing. And and the scribe, uh, she turned around and asked me, um, does it get easier? 
do you stop do you stop feeling the the death of your patients and i thought about it for a minute and um you know i've i've been uh in full practice for about 3 years now and and in some version of emergency practice for about 7 uh and i said i said no you know it still tears the same size hole in you every time but the more you do it you realize you're a much bigger piece of fabric than you thought you were and you're a lot more connected to the rest of the universe so the hole's still there but relatively speaking it's a much smaller part of everything else um and i think that's what i'm what i'm going for which is to stay calm and and to use the skills but not to not to stop feeling humanity i love that you know cuz that's that's the sort of difficulty of it is is that you don't lose the you know, you get to a point where you're not just so wrapped up in it, the fact it's a baby in front of you and worrying about it, et cetera, that you forget to do your job, but you also don't lose the fact it's a person in front of you. Right. And I think that's what a lot of people forget is I always say to people, it's the person that you're shouting out on the phone is a person. <laughs> the, you know, it's the person that's helping you is a person. So if we speak to each other like human beings, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's hard to teach people skills. It's easy to teach people how to do certain bits of how to work technology, et cetera. But we can't always teach them how to be a, a good human being. And that's where I think people struggle. Mm, absolutely. Doctors are super humble. They're super genuine, compassionate people. How can you, can you teach compassion? Or are people born with it? You know, how, how can we learn to be like doctors and nurses and like that look after people and give it all to save somebody? How can we use those kind of that personal skill set to in the boardroom in our own jobs. Yeah. I mean, I, first off, that's this very generous of you to say that most doctors are, are humble, nice human beings. I, I think that's like, I think we, <laughs> that's like mostly true. Um, you know, I think we certainly, or I, at least I can't speak for all doctors. I certainly aspire to be that, but, but I don't think that it's a skill set that is um, unique in any way to doctors or nurses. I, I think that it, it's more of, a step before that, which is, you know, there is suffering and there is challenge and there are emergencies. And every one of us has to make the choice about whether or not we're somebody that would step up and try to help um, or we're not. And, uh, you know, because the truth is there's no one coming from outside of us to save us like this, right? Whatever's happening, it's going to be up to us and our communities and our families to take care of ourselves. And so if we make that commitment and say, I'm going to step forward, then and I'm going to learn how to step forward, then, then that's a big, you know, that's a big movement on the path. Um, and, oh shoot, there was something else I wanted to say. Um, lost it. Sorry. <laughs> that's what I always find is like, you can go on and I'll start asking a question about one thing. I'm thinking, yeah. right, I'm going to ask the next three questions and 20 minutes later, I'm kind of combining 50 or 60 different <laughs> things. I can see people kind of going, what the, f how the hell yeah. am I going to answer that? Because <laughs> I get so wrapped up in your material that it kind of, I live it almost. Yeah. And sometimes I can't break it down enough to, to, you know, I'm doing it for myself. I forget sometimes to do it for an audience as well yeah, yeah. to kind of explain it step by step. Um, but I mean, we can go on and throw it back in later on if you want. Um, so what's your opinion then about training this? You know, 
when you get a new student who's coming in medical school, how do you use things like technology, visualization, um, dummies, and things like that? To, how do you explain these kind of procedures and then start ramping it up to the point that somebody's doing it on a real person to then doing it by themselves and controlling a team? How you know? How would you see the training develop and change so that the next generation of doctors can be more sort of better with emergency mind and better handling these kind of pressures and situations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that... Um that this question applies not just to to doctors and people in medical training, but but to everybody, because I think the question is a fundamental one for all of us, which is how do any of us become better at handling emergencies, right? Because like, if you look at the difference between me now and me, you know, when I started all this, certainly there's like knowledge differences, right? There's there's what's the dose of amniodarone, there's what's the number of, you know, like, um, uh, jewels I'm going to defibrillate somebody with. But but actually, it's more about the same reusable skill sets that are true for everybody, which is how do you function better under pressure? And if you're going to train to function better under pressure, then ultimately, you have to train with pressure. And so what that means is, and this is something that's um, a number of folks on my podcast have talked about in, in um, you know, everything from from uh, explosive ordnance disposal to jujitsu to surfing to uh, to emergency functioning in, in medicine, which is the idea that you know you want to learn a skill, whatever that skill is you want to deploy under pressure, you want to practice that skill, and then you want to slowly ramp up the pressure until it gets uncomfortable and you start failing a little bit, and then you want to back off and learn about it, and you want to sort of turn it back on and turn it back off that level of pressure like that. So. Um, there's this great book, The Pressure Principle by Dave Allred, who's, a, um, among other things, a world-class rugby coach. And that that area where you're having enough pressure on that your uh, skill is breaking every now and then, he calls that the ugly zone, which I think is a great way to put that, right? You want to train in the zone where you're looking a little ugly. Um, and his point, which I think is really well taken, is that you can break down individual components of a skill, right? So, so let's take, you know, let's take jujitsu, which I, I don't at all to pretend to be a master of or a master a master teacher in. But um, okay, actually, so so <laughs> let's shift gears. Let's take uh, let's take throwing a punch, right? So, because um, for a long time I actually did teach uh, Muay Thai and and send, uh, uh, and had the the sort of real joy of taking a number of people from never having done martial arts before to sort of through the first steps of their their journey into uh, into doing a striking art. Um, you know, and, and how do you learn to throw a punch, right? Well, you sit down in front of a mirror and you watch some mechanics and you practice a few times Then you put some gloves on, you take some pads, you hit once or twice, you stop, you feel where it, you feel where it feels different. Uh, then you throw it a little faster, you throw it a little harder than the other person throws back at you. And you're sort of gradually ramping up the thing until it's a thing that you can deploy almost mindlessly. Um, but that idea of, of getting good at it and then ramping up slowly and and, and more importantly, allowing yourself to be in a space where you struggle and knowing that that's not, um, that that's actually the goal. Like being in a space where you struggle is actually the goal. Like you're going to work on getting better at it and you're going to improve your skill, but there's not this idea of, for me at least, there's not this idea that you're going to reach some space where everything is going to be fine and there's never going to be any struggle again, right? The only version of that that I see is like death, <laughs> but Otherwise, 
I'm going to spend the rest of my life training in a space where I struggle. And I think, you know, embedded in that question you asked was how can we train the next generation of doctors to be better? Well, one thing I fervently believe is that everybody at my level, everybody who's the attending, who's doing the teaching needs to be really honest that we are also learning. We are also students. We are also exploring. And then together we can have this culture where everybody is learning and exploring, where you're doing exactly what you're doing on this podcast. You're, you're trying to get better at things. You're talking to people. I am, our students are, everybody together understands that our goal is experimentation and improvement, not like finality and stability. Because that's the thing I always say to people is I'm far from an expert in anything, mm -hmm. but I want to learn, I want to develop. And there's too many gurus who tell you that this is the only way to do things. You know, like look at jujitsu and how many people will tell you that this guard is better than that guard or people will tell you that, in business this is the way to do it which might work for somebody with a certain kind of skill set qualifications in a certain environment but it's not going to work for every single person um i mean that's something i, I know they say in jiu-jitsu is you learn the best when you're tired and you're mm -hmm. rolling 50 or 60 different people um so apologies for my notifications going off um but i mean what is it about the stoic philosophy that attracts you you know i mean it's something that a lot of people are now becoming more and more popular with like the Tim Ferriss four hour work week and things mm -hmm. like that. But how has that helped you adopting this kind of philosophy to you, your medical care to how you view life and deal with the emergency mind and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Stoics are a totally amazing group of philosophers that I was pretty lucky to be exposed to when I was younger. Um, and I think that, you know, their core tenets, which are uh, accepting the reality of the universe, the way that it's built and understanding um, that the only space you can control is within yourself uh, and sort of letting the rest of the universe be what it will um, are really, really grounding and motivating for me and, and obviously have a lot in common with sort of the first two pillars of the emergency mind. Um, and I think that uh, a lot of this started for me after you know, realizing that over and over again, I would go up against these big life or death issues with patients and that I'd be sort of sitting on the edge of that, of that life and death over and over again and going up to bat against it every day uh, and realizing that, that what, what does that mean about my own existence, right? What does that mean about existence in general and, and starting to dig into some of these deeper, bigger questions, um, which is what the Stoics were there for, right? That's what they, that's what they believed. Uh, and Stoic philosophy is a, um, and just if you've never, if you're listening to this and you've never really dug into the Stoics, um, Marcus Aurelius, uh, Seneca, and Epictetus are sort of the three big players in the world. Uh, and I would definitely start with Marcus Aurelius's meditations. It's his own journal to himself about um, how he wants to improve as a human being. And it's really easily accessible. Um, so uh, I'd skip the first chapter, by the way. I would definitely start with chapter two, just for whatever that's worth. Uh, so, you know, the Stoic philosophers are, are really about not theory, not, you know, philosophy in the abstract, but philosophy as practiced in day-to-day -day lives. And the idea that, hey, we're going to take these big things we believe about the way the universe works and boil them down into our actions and judge our actions based on how well they line up with what the deeper truths we think are. And so that, that really resonated with me in terms of how can I do a better job at 
um, functioning during an emergency and, and how can I really give this person and this family the best that I have to offer? Um, and sort of having that feedback loop in terms of, all right, well, am I really lining up my deeper priorities with what's happening in the day-to-day? Uh, and there's a, there's a number of like specific stoic concepts that are, are totally totally worth digging into. We talked about memento mori. Um, there's another one that Tim Ferriss talks about a lot too, which I'm going to totally butcher the pronunciation of, but um, premeditatio or premeditatio malorum, which is the idea of sort of thinking ahead about the bad stuff that's going to happen. So for the Stoics, they would do this and, and they'd think ahead of time about, they'd visualize themselves getting diseases or, or you know, losing a limb or losing a family member. Uh, and they would do that to, to train their resolve to act appropriately, no matter what the circumstance was. Um, there's another version of that, which is thinking ahead about the bad things that are going to happen and making sure that you are ready for them. Uh, and that's something that same skill set is something we use all the time when we're about to perform a really critical procedure, right? So let's say we're about to place a breathing tube. We'll sit there for a moment and actually collectively and say this out loud, say, hey, we're going to run, you know, a pre-meditatio malorum package right now. Let's all sit down and think about everything that could go wrong and make sure that we have contingency plans, backups, probabilities, and have our tools ready to go. So I think we're, you know, in some sense, we're actually really directly using Stoic philosophy techniques in the emergency department. Um, but in a more general idea, you know, everybody has the ability to really try to think for themselves about what are these deep things, and am I am I really living a life that's consistent with them? It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy, so how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com/affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and level up. So William, what would you say to people who then think, well, it's surely just about repetition. You know, we just need to be, you just need to see 50 patients with X, Y, Z, and you're going to learn because people seem to think that, I think it's the, is it the Malcolm Gladwell, mm-hmm. um, you know, like 10,000 hours. And you try to explain that, but yes, that's the case as long as it's proper training. If it's, you can't just, you know, otherwise the oldest and most experienced person would be the best f- physician best board member whatever it is like what do you think about that kind of idea of practice and skill development to the point you know because people will say about visualization where the brain doesn't understand the difference between what you visualized like deeply and emotionally as much as what you're learning training you know it can be just as good in terms of skill development and things like that but how like what's your opinion about skills and developing like um, repetition and is it about experience and repetition or what makes a good doctor in that sense? Yeah, sure. So, um, so Malcolm Gladwell, you know, when he was thinking about the ten thousand hours, was really quoting this study by by Anders Ericsson, who wrote this great book, uh, Peak, um, which is a really interesting book to read and and dig into and. Um, 
you know, his idea, I believe this study was done in musicians in a conservatory in Germany, looking at the difference in the practice hours between the highest performing and the sort of less highly performing musicians. Um, there's a bunch of other stuff coming out now that I, I'm not super facile with the data about that says maybe that number isn't really true. Um, but even if you even if you ignore that for a second, because the question is really about, do you get better with repetition? Uh, or if not, how do you get better? And so certainly you, you need repetition as much as possible. But I think some of the details come out in terms of what type of thing you're doing, right? So if you're learning a skill where there is immediate and visceral feedback about what you're doing, then repetition is going to be really, really useful, right? If, if you and I are in a jujitsu class and, you know, you have me in a half guard and I'm trying to smash your half guard, and I try a hundred times and you defend a hundred times, that's going to be a good learning cycle, right? Because there's immediate visceral feedback about what happens and what doesn't. And we can stop and dissect it in between each case. We can minimize the number of variables we're training on. Uh, we can say, okay, for the moment, we're going to not, you know, switch to butterfly half. We're going to stay in half. Okay, cool. That, that gives us a space within which we can learn. And we can really hit that sort of ugly zone that Dave Allred's talking about and hit our reps in. It's a lot more complicated to figure out how to learn something when perhaps there's a long delay time between the outcome and your evaluation of your own performance to go back to that idea. Uh, and so it's a lot, that's a lot more complicated. And then you get into these things that like, you know, in emergency uh, medicine, there are sometimes procedures that you have to do to save a life, uh, but that maybe you've never done before. Maybe they're just so rare that you've never done them before. Um, you know, so I, I think about um, when I was an intern, my first year of emergency training, there was a, a patient who was very sick and was actively, uh, actively um, exsanguinating uh, and dying because they were vomiting up so much blood. And um, it had a long history of liver failure. And so we had to place a device called a Blakemore tube, which goes into the esophagus and inflates. It's like a balloon in the esophagus um, to sort of block off that bleeding. And it's one of these things where, you know, okay, if you, if you don't inflate it enough, the person bleeds to death and dies. And if you inflate it too much, their esophagus explodes and then they die. Um, so very, very small margin of error there in the middle. Uh, and as it turns out, nobody in the entire emergency department uh, had, or honestly, in the entire hospital, as far as I know, that day had ever actually placed one of those before. It's just that rare of a thing. And, you know, now we do it, we do it more or less, or there's other things, but at that, at that particular day, nobody had been available to do that. And so there were no reps in right? There was zero time to get reps, no reps before that. Um, I had seen one once. And so that actually made me the most skilled operator in some sense. And, and so I, you know, went in there and put it in and figured it out. And um, thankfully that story has a, a good outcome, which is that the patient survived. Um, but, but yes, repetitions are important. And also trying to learn uh, cross-cutting principles about how to operate anything when you don't have the ability to to run actual reps on it. And part of that can be overcome by things like visualization, things like simulation. Um, and I think that applies obviously not just to emergency medicine, but but to everything. You know, you're gonna find yourself in situations that you've never been in before, that you haven't been able to practice. But what is this package of things that you can rely on no matter what's happening? And, and that, that really is the purpose of the emergency mind is to help you build those tools. 
So what is this kind of experience of, you know, like the years that you've worked in medicine and, you know, sort of become an emergency doctor, etc. But what's it taught you about leadership, sort of like running a team, you know, the networking, the people skills, because you can plan, you know, for having so much equipment on site, but you can never know exactly what's going to come and you can never exactly remove the emotion from a situation and, you know, like you don't always get a chance to review and analyze each situation before the next one comes in. But what has it taught you about leadership in the sense or being the person that stands up to when the things need to be counted? Yeah, um, I think that first off, leadership, uh, like a lot of the stuff we've talked about today, is is a choice. And it's a choice to be a, a dedicated student of it or not. Um, so the best leaders that I see when I when I watch uh, teammates of mine run a resuscitation, um, you know what I see is people that are deeply dedicated to a particular cause, that they are able to share that vision with the entire room, and that are uh, able to express themselves both as a master and a student in the same moment. Um, and that, that, you know, the first two parts are somewhat obvious, right? Like you have a cause you believe in and you're able to share that vision about what's important. And the third part's a little less obvious, I think, which is that you're in charge. It's your word that goes and um, being able to to communicate that effectively and to, to do that are a whole bunch of skills that we can talk through. Um, but also at the same time to to have that openness to the fact that you don't know everything that there's a bunch of other eyes in the room and that your goal is not to be correct and your goal is not to be perfect. Your goal is to take care of that patient. So when I was training, um, I uh, got a chance to work with uh, an ER doctor, Chuck Posner, who runs this thing called the Stratus Center for Simulation. So he's a, he's a world's expert in teaching and simulation. And he said, look, if I give each person in the room a test um, about medical knowledge, you guys are all going to score individually some numbers, maybe 80%, maybe 90%, whatever it is. But if I give you one test and I let the entire room take it together, you're going to score 100 on it because collectively your knowledge is what's going to count. So the question is when you're in the middle of an incredibly tense situation, how do you take the knowledge of the entire room and deliver it to that patient where and when they need it? And part of that has to do with that, that, you know, you know, Jocko Willick talks a lot about the dichotomy of leadership, but but that that difference about being at the same time uh, a master and an expert at your craft, but also a student and open and able to receive knowledge from everybody else. Because that's what I loved about your talk, where you talked about I can try to remember the monk's name, and then you mentioned Jocko Willick, and <laughs> yeah. I was just like, <laughs> I, I loved that kind of the the difference between the two of them you know it's where that we have to be good enough to take charge and control the situation and you know stand up and say this is how we're going to do things this is what we're going to you know use your skill set that you've got but you've also got to be able to accept that you don't know everything mm-hmm. humble enough that there is somebody there that maybe knows better or a more experienced person and try to use other people and their skill sets i mean that's why they will say that you know, the best leaders will never try to run everything, but they'll find the right people for the right for the right areas to make the the overall goal achievable. 
Um, so what do you think now? I mean, we're in a situation, obviously, that the whole world's dealing with the latest pandemic, mm-hmm. um, the coronavirus, or is everybody, and I think there was something where 36% of Americans would stop buying corona beer because they thought they had something to do with it. Um, That's too bad. Let's not, go into, let's not go into that right now. But what do you think about the medical care system as a whole? Because back when Ebola was a big thing, um, there was a talk um, where they looked, there was a couple of TED talks about how we're not ready for the next pandemic, you know, that we haven't really kind of prepped for anything, that these things are going to keep coming, that we haven't got um, like the stuff ready, the medicines, the, the, you know, the necessary skills that we're not planning and doing anything for it. So what do you think about the way the medical systems are different around the world? And like, you know, how we don't seem to learn from these pandemics and mass sort of hysteria events. Hmm. Yeah, it, that that is complicated. I, I think that um, first off, I hope if you're listening to this that you are doing okay, <laughs> that you are uh, appropriately taking care of yourself um, and staying relatively socially isolated for the moment. It's a great time to listen to more podcasts uh, and dig in like that. You know, I, I think that these are complicated questions because they they drift away from simple medical issues and they drift into much more complicated issues of how society works, how we want society to work, and then also how our society actually does work. Uh, what is what is the cohesion among all of us and, and how much do we feel the need to take care of each other versus ourselves? Um, these are deep, you know, what does it mean to be human questions that we're bumping up against with this. Um, you know, I think that uh, an ideal healthcare system would provide healthcare for everybody. Uh, and that's part of why I got into emergency medicine because I never wanted to say no to somebody because of who they were or what type of insurance they had or what their family was. You know, I, I want to be the one that says, you have a problem. Yes, I'm going to try to fix it. Um, but uh, as we move through this, my hope is that our systems of healthcare all across the world, and and both on a big scale, you know, country to country, but also on a smaller scale, community to community, neighborhood to neighborhood, city to city. I, my hope is that we can be really open with each other and learn from each other about what works and what doesn't. And, it, you know, oftentimes we have this sort of shell around us like, oh, I, I know best and, you know, you're sort of backwards or or maybe you're good at that, but I'm better at this or whatever it is. And this sort of unnecessary ego about it. Um, and I hope that we can drop that and we can learn from each other. You know, the, the idea that we incorporate in the emergency mind playing for the future, this, this speaks directly to the idea of not wasting suffering, right? We have put an enormous shock on our system and we damn well better learn from it. We better figure out what happens and we better prepare ourselves for what happens next because this, you know, when we get through this, and I truly believe we will, this isn't going to be the last time something like this happens in humanity. And we need to learn reusable lessons from this and, and to compare notes. And again, that gets to that idea about being a master and a student at the same time, right? Being somebody who's open to learning and open to experimenting. And instead of adopting a stance that says, I am the best at this, to adopt a stance that says, this is what we're trying to accomplish. 
let's figure it out together. Um, at least that's what I hope happens. Yeah, because we never seemed to. Uh, sorry, I was actually looking earlier for the. I think it was a Bill Gates TED talk I was looking at, where he mentioned about we we don't ever seem to learn from that. You know, then people go and they panic by, and we get to a point where people forget about other people, and you know. I really hope we can get to the situation where you're advising where people can actually learn from these situations and put protocols in place to to help for the next for the next one. Mm-hmm. But for the people that you deal with consistently, do you notice something about them? I mean, I know anybody could fall off a ladder being a car crash, but what kind of advice would you give to people just now? You know, because you get these people who go to A E for silly things and they want to get antibiotics for xyz where a lot of times it's easier for the body or better for the body to kind of learn to defeat it itself what advice would you give to people from your medical knowledge you know is it improved diet more exercise meditation what would habits would you want to see people doing to try to live healthier lives yeah um i mean i, I would recommend against falling off a ladder for sure uh, <laughs> But, but, you know, I think there's, there's two ways to answer that. One, one is right now in this particular climate where our healthcare systems are stressed to the absolute max, I would definitely be in favor of if you are feeling sick, talk to your normal doctor first to help figure out if it's the right thing to do to go into the emergency department, into the A&E. Um, uh, from a broader sense, I think that it goes back to the same thing we've been talking about, which is becoming a student of yourself. Like you really have to believe that your health can get better, that you can learn about your body, that you can improve your systems, uh, and that you can, um, through a combination of self-experimentation and also absorbing the best knowledge that's out there, that you can live a healthier, better life. Um, But it all starts with the idea that you're going to get curious you're going to get curious about yourself and how you work. Um, and I think that a lot of us don't necessarily have that. You know, at some fundamental level, we're sort of a stranger in our body or, or maybe we're even scared of it, right? We don't know what it means when it makes this noise or it hurts in this place. Um, and, and that goes beyond just sort of, uh, you know, eat more of this or eat less of this. But it's about understanding like, how do I feel? How, uh, how does my body feel when I treat it this way versus when I treat it that way? And, and what is healthy and what is good? Um, but I'll throw a word of caution in there, which is that like, it's also, you know, it, you can take that to the extreme and you can say, well, I feel great. So I don't want to listen to what anybody else is saying. And, and that usually ends up in, in disaster of one form or another. Um, you know, the, we, um, there's a tension between uh, only doing, uh, you know, naturopathic stuff and also listening to some of the best advice out there from pretty detailed, well done uh, scientific studies about about what medicines are helpful for us. Um, and I think that there's a version of this where, you know, we, you, you know, imagine what, what would an amazing future look like, right? It would look like a group of people that were uh, clued into their own bodies, that meditated, that um, did restorative practices like yoga and also aggressively strong practices like jujitsu, um, you know, that were able to, that were strong and fit and healthy and happy and able to take care of each other. Uh, and 
despite everything that's happening in the universe right now with Corona, I, I like, I totally believe that that is a thing that is within reach for us, but it requires each of us to, to take ownership and to step forward of it. And that's something a lot of people want to avoid. It's, it's easier for me to say, Oh no, the doctor should do that. Oh no, the, the guy at work should be starting my diet. Oh no, the X, Y, you know, it's, it's easier to kind of blame somebody else. It's the government fault. It's the, yeah, it's it's hard to say. Yes, I could be, you know, looking after myself, and then we tie up injuries to our story. You know, it's like, oh, I used to play football. My back's been bad since I used to power lift and stuff like that. And uh, I interviewed um, Kelly Starrett, you know, the postural coach, and that's what he was saying: is we should be living to hundred. We shouldn't have these sore knees or the bad hips. We shouldn't be in pain getting out of chair, and you know, we kind of. We don't take ownership of ourselves, our lives, our ability to be healthier people. We kind of just assume that actually there's always going to be resources to fix this. And these kind of pandemics are scaring people now because there isn't the food to go around. There isn't people checking on the elderly or the vulnerable or the and I think that's what's kind of scaring people is you're realizing a lot of times it might be just you looking after yourself, hmm. you know, taking ownership of your health. And I think it's kind of scares a lot of people. Um, I mean, what's your opinion then on the American pay for play? Uh, you know, would you like to see an NHS style over there or? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, so, so before answering that, there, there's one step backward, which is, you know, I'm, we're talking about personal responsibility for health and that is incredibly important. We also have to recognize that the playing field is not even to start with, right? That there is vast amounts of structural racism and violence and things that, that make it a lot harder for certain groups of people than others to do those things, to take care of themselves. Right. And if you look at the data on like food deserts and if you look at the data on access to care these things at least in the in the u.s are not at all equal and there are people where the the ramp is a lot higher to get up on so i I think a better you know i said earlier there's a vision of healthy people taking care of themselves i think a better version of that vision is healthy people taking care of themselves in healthy communities supported by healthy systems and that's sort mm-hmm. of the universal vision of like what it would take to build a really successful society like that. And, you know, those systems have to be in place, like you said, to check on the elderly and the infirm, to help people when it's not as easy to help themselves in that moment, and also to empower everybody to take care of themselves and, and to, to own that version of themselves. Um, I think that's a more inclusive, better way to say it. Uh, but to get, to get to your question, like I, I am... I am a firm believer in the universal right to healthcare. I absolutely am. In some sense, we already believe this in the States. We just don't really talk about it that way. Because if you fall down in the street and have a heart attack, you know, you're going to go to an emergency department and we're going to take care of you. It doesn't matter who you are, what insurance you have. It doesn't matter if you are a U.S. citizen or not a U.S. citizen. It's irrelevant. Like we have agreed as a community that we will not leave you dying on the street while we look through your wallet for your insurance card. And like, like that's damn right that we don't want to do that. The problem is that for some reason, we haven't agreed that we will also figure out a way to prevent that from happening for you, which doesn't make any sense to me. Um, So I I really, you know, I think the NHS system is wonderful in some ways and, and challenging and perhaps flawed in others like any one individual system is. So I think it's hard Mm -hmm. to say I want to adopt that system. But I do believe that we all should have access to healthcare. And, you know, again, perhaps this is a great opportunity for 
people to be sharing a lot more data and models about what works and what doesn't work. Um, and you know, having that ability to, to be open and learn from each other is the first step towards designing a system that, that does work for everybody. Uh, I, I wish I had a, you know, I wish I had a perfect answer to what that is, but, um, because that's the thing into it, is that we are now in a generation where for the first time in ages we have such a high level of elderly people living much longer. We have to start thinking now about people not sort of dying off in their, their early sixties and stuff like that, or people like able to work a lot later and we haven't got the care systems in place and we don't know what's gonna happen with some of these diseases or medications and stuff like that because with it, we don't have the data to see how things are going to go. And it, that's the, the beauty about sort of what you do is that you don't discriminate. You just deal with the person and then, you you know, you get them healthy again. And I think that's the approach is rather than thinking about it in terms of oh, helping ourselves, we should be helping each other and looking out for each other. And it's scary how society kind of breaks down when it comes to things like these and we're not just helping each other. And you know, yes, we should be looking to hit the next level in our own lives, but we should also be looking to help others and get better and leave the next generation the, the best version of the world we can. And at the moment, we're not doing that. We're kind of we've become a very selfish generation. And it's I think you know, everybody goes on about the millennials and stuff like that. But it's kind of sad the way we've become as men. I mean. What has it taught you working in medicine about like men and masculinity and their approach to the world? Hmm. Yeah, man, that is a deep, that is a deep well of questions right there. Um, I think that I have been incredibly lucky uh, in my life, both in terms of the people that have taught me and the role models, both men and women uh, that have been there that have taught me how to be a better version of myself and that have demanded and expected that of me. Um, and I'm incredibly lucky to get a chance to work with my patients, you know, many of whom have been through nearly unimaginable levels of suffering and hardship and have emerged, um, while not necessarily physically healthier, uh, have emerged, um, you know, with these very deep, wonderful ideas about, about how the universe works and what to do about it um, and have shown such courage and strength as they do it. And I, I think that, you know, I, I'm, I couldn't pretend to sit down here and, and tell people, you know, what, what being a man is. Uh, I can tell you what it is for me, which is to master myself and serve the world. Right? That's, that's my version of it, which is to sit down and spend my life mastering myself, mastering, you know, to be a master of my body and my mind, which implies, of course, that constant student aspect of it, like we talked about, because those are really sides of the same coin. And then also to find a way to serve the world, to, to make that part of it. And that those two goals are, are equal in my mind. Um, I think that implicit in that is the idea that we figure like we have the responsibility to figure out our purpose for ourselves, right? Like that, that Viktor Frankl quote, you know, man must not ask what the meaning of life is, but rather must recognize that it is he who is asked. 
Uh, that's an amazing way of putting it because it is something about it. It's not just what we can get out of life. It's what we can give back and how we can leave life better, You know how we can leave the world better. And it's, I mean, I know we're sort of well over our time. I mean, I really hope that I've given any kind of just of like of how much I enjoyed you, what your your message and your podcast and just what you do in the world because you're doing an amazing work that you know you're stepping up. You're one of those people that helps others live that can take them off the brink of death and give somebody extra time and help families even just come to terms with what's happening and you know just giving somebody some solace or understanding or sort of just some general human empathy during the times that are the worst is it's an amazing thing that you do i mean i would love to have you back on again we can really start going deeper but you know the stuff you're doing is amazing and i really love the the emergency mind and the way and how it can help other people but for those people listening you know what would you want them as a sort of go home message what would you want them to take from this as a kind of a general reminder or some actions to do in the next six months, et cetera. Absolutely. And, and, and Ian, thank you so much for having me on, man. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you about this stuff and, and to dig in. And, and I hope, um, I hope to come back and do it more. And I hope people listening to this are, uh, you know, uh, fired up a little bit about wanting to get into this and also maybe feeling a little nervous about how to start and not wanting to, to, you know, immediately start cutting into people's necks and putting central lines in, which is great. Please don't do that unless you're trained. Um, but, uh, but what I do want you to do, what I would challenge you to do is to sit down and think about emergencies that you've been through in your own life and to imagine what a different version of that would be where you were able to truly give the best version of yourself to that moment. And if that strikes a chord in you, if you said, hey, yeah, if I could have done that, that would have made life so much different, then how are you going to do that going forward? And my challenge is for you to start thinking about the idea that how you behave under pressure is a skill. And it's a skill that you have to learn. And it's a skill that you need to learn. And so to start with the small things and today, tomorrow, the next day, when you find yourself reacting out of pressure, just start taking a note of what you're doing. How are you acting? What might be a slightly better, what might be a 10% to get back to Kaizen? What might be a 10% better way to act right now? Um, if that type of thing interests you, uh, you know, come over and check out what we're doing. Um, you can go to theemergencymind.com. The podcast is there. You can sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we've got a lot of great stuff coming down the pipe. Um, there's going to be a book uh, in the future. Uh, there's going to be trainings. There's going to be all sorts of stuff. But but whether or not you come over to what I'm doing or not, like figure out how you work under pressure and how you can get better at it. Um, get out there and get after it. Because that's something I was going to say was it's definitely a book there. I could see, uh, yeah. you know, seminars, conferences. It, it's, it's an amazing you're doing it. And it's, you're not just talking for medical people. You're talking about how we can all change and affect and become better people. Um, I mean, how can we get in touch with you? You know, can you give the URL again, the social media handles? Like, what's the best way to start working with you in this area? Absolutely. So so the, the website is... is uh, emergencymind.com. Um, and, uh, that has everything that has the podcast, although you can also find the podcast basically anywhere, Apple, Spotify, um, 
you know, SoundCloud, kind of anywhere. Um, but going to emergencymind.com, uh, there's a contact form. Um, you can fill that out and talk to me directly. You can email me directly. It's dan at emergencymind.com. Um, uh, Instagram is, I'm going to look this up as we're talking because I always forget what my Instagram name is. One second. Oh, here it is. Uh, it's d.dworkis. So D and then my last name. Um, that's that's Instagram. Um there's a Twitter, but it doesn't really do anything right now. So, you know, I would say those two are the easiest ways to get a hold of me. It's amazing, like how you can never remember your own ones. Oh, you I know, know right? I, I always do that because somebody took Next Level Guy huh. and um, nextlevelguy.com and some things, but Next Level Guy and others. And I probably should change that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I really hope that I've kind of done justice to what you're doing there because. I get so excited when I started listening to the show and diving into this sort of stuff. I sometimes can get a bit excited and combine different questions that maybe don't allow you to give full answers and stuff like that because you are doing amazing work. But I mean, is there anything that you think we've not covered? Is there anything that you would like to talk about or mention that you feel would be helpful? You know, I think we've hit a lot of the stuff. We talked about what the emergency mind is and, and how you can start approaching it. Uh, I hope we, I hope I've been able to convince you and people listening that this isn't just for ER doctors, right? This is for you, whoever you are listening to this, because you really will face emergencies and, and what you do now today is going to impact those things in the future of your life. Um, I guess the only other thing I'd say is that that none of this is easy, Right. There's no easy parts in here about uh, redesigning how your brain and body work in times of crisis. And that's okay. It's not supposed to be easy. It's going to be hard and it's going to be worth it. And, you know, when when you're in the middle of the training, just like jujitsu or anything else, like stick with it. Find people that do it with you and stick with it. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.